All right, come on in, folks. We are just getting started here. Oh. And uh, if you're, like I said, last week, uh, we, um, we're, we are in the line of the Apostles' Creed where it says, he descended uh, into hell. And that's always been a, tr- a problematic phrase in the creed that, uh, believe it or not, uh, I had uh, one gentleman that's part of our class. He's not here right now. Mike is his name. And And uh, he says that he grew up in a church that literally eliminated that line from the creed because of uh, the confusion that it caused and uh, the um, sort of the uh, uh, ambiguity to it, you know, because we we even we we, we talked a little bit about last week. What what does it exactly mean uh, that he descended into hell? And we we talked about not necessarily where is hell, but but what is it? And uh, and again, if you if you miss that, uh, I can point you to the recording so you can uh, listen to it later if you'd like. But where I wanted to uh, pick up a little bit, review last week where we left off, uh, we, we talked about this verse. When we talk about descending, the Lord descending into hell, I wanted to point this vo- verse out to you and keep this in mind because when you read Philippians 2, 5 to 8, you're getting a sense of what it is to descend and what it is how Christ descended. All right, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, think of this as the, though he was in the form of the highest position, if we can say, to occupy, one could occupy, There's, there is no name higher, there is no position higher. He was in the form of God, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He did not empty himself of his deity. He emptied himself of his personal heavenly privilege, his seat at the, at the hand, with the hand of the Father. Uh, so he emptied himself of all, of all heavenly comfort, And what did he do? He took on the form of a servant. He descended. He descended from heaven and he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Not only did he descend from heaven, not only did he take on human form, but he became a servant. And and, uh, I I preached a sermon on this not not too long ago. The idea of a servant, uh, this this language is a little bit soft because, frankly, what servant means in in the original context is is more of a slave. Not someone who is hired themselves out for a a job, but but is either paying off a debt of some kind or or, uh, is uh, is working without pay. So he he took on the form of of a servant. So it's not just that he, he descended. That's one level of of, uh, of, uh, of dissension that he, he came down from heaven, emptied himself of his privilege. He took on the form of, of, a, of a man and then being, for, being born in the likeness of man, then he found himself in the, in the form of a servant, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you think about where he started and where he descended to. This is all a description of the de- descending. And what we spoke about last week was his, his descending unto hell was his separation of, 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 of the Father's goodness. And again, I want to reiterate that. We can never say that the Trinity split. So when they say that he, he separated from, from the Father, it was, it was not that the Trinity broke up. It's not that the Trinity suddenly became a, a duality, <laughs> if that's a word. The Trinity always was. But when we say the Father turned his face away or the Father turned his goodness away, because remember in James, every good and pleasing gift is from the Father up above. And so that, his goodness is turned away. And he experienced uh, in that moment on the cross, hell. That was hell on the cross. Okay? And uh, again, he, this, this encapsulates it really well, this, this idea of, of how far he descended. And so... Um, 
again, he left heaven, became a servant. Um, and so this is where I wanted to pick up this week. So with that thought in, in your mind. And uh, when I was a kid, um, we would watch movies. And when we would watch these movies, and I really think this is a, a thing of, of, of a bygone era, because when you would get to the end of the movie, you would see that it says, well, you know, at the end of the movie, because the, the credits start rolling, before even the credits start rolling, what do they put up on the screen? The end. You know, there's no ambiguity to that. The end. You don't, you don't think about it. When was the last movie you saw that ended with the end? Okay, now we can get up and go. Now, it's much more complicated than that, because if you, when was the last time you were even in a theater? It's so uh, different now. But even so, the, the movies that you rent at home and stream at home, how do you know when you're at the end? Okay, the, the credits start rolling, right? But is the movie over? Not always. Why? What happens? There's either outtakes, or they call them Easter eggs, or hidden scenes, or scenes that, like the Marvel movies really took this to another level. Because you would, you would start watching the credits, and this was back when you had to sit in the theater and so you couldn't just get, you know, I remember the first time we did that, we were with my kids and I can't remember what movie it was. And we, we started to get up and go like, no, 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 you can't get up yet. Now you're like, why? I don't need to know who the key grip is, you know? And so suddenly there was another scene, another scene of the movie right there. It's like amazing. Oh, okay. And so it's maybe even giving us a, a teaser as to what's, what's going to be next, what, what, what the next movie is. So when that one ends, okay, now we can get up. No, 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 no. Because sometimes they would have two, a second, a second Easter egg scene that would happen at the, the end of the end of the end of the end. So after all, the, every last credit you can imagine has already gone by on the screen, then there's one final scene, right? One final Easter egg scene. And then you know the movie is over. Okay, so, so that's, that's the, the image I want to put in your head. You sit through those credits, waiting until the bitter end, until the, the very last name is mentioned, okay? That's when you know the movie is over. Christ suffered. He proclaimed God's, he, he, he uh, proclaimed God's curse. Uh, it was on him. He buried, he, he uh, bore the weight of it. The separation from God's favor. That was the hell he was suffering. And now how do we know it's over? When is it really over for Christ? When is it really over? John 19, 28 to 30. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on the hyssop branch. This is from the Psalms. Uh, and, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. The end. And bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Do you know that meaning, we may have talked about this in, in uh, last week, that meaning of the end, it's tetelestai, was the, the phrase that he uttered, and it's translated as, it is finished here in John. But the significant behind it is, is, a, is an accounting term, used in accounting, which means paid in full. Paid in full. It was almost always and exclusively used in, a, in an accounting context. But it wasn't over... Oh, it wasn't only over exclusively uh, that, that idea. It's not exclusively used in accounting. It, was, it, was a, it wasn't a, a word like debit or credit or, or, or balance sheet. It had other uses in everyday life too. It was a, a statement that meant it is utterly and completely accomplished. There's a sense of finality to it, okay? Which is why it's used in accounting 
applications, all right? Because when a debt was paid in full, that meant it was out of, no, you couldn't get any more payment out of it. When a, when a debt was paid in full, there was no more collecting, all right? Back then, if they had uh, people that would call you up and bill collectors, that's it. They couldn't call you anymore. When Christ bowed his head and gave up his spirit, it was completely and utterly accomplished. There was no more to be paid. The debt was completely satisfied. And again, when you, under, when you begin to understand, and you have to, this is why it's so important to study the, 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 the Bible as a whole. Because again, if you, if you only read these passages, you only read the passage in the New Testament, you, you wouldn't have a complete understanding of what atonement, what atonement means. And when you atoned for sins, they're put off, they're put away. There's nothing more to be paid for, okay? That's what atonement is. Complete, a debt that's completely satisfied. No more hell to be paid. Now, why is that significant, what we're talking about with this line in the creed? Because it means there was no reason for Christ to go to hell after he said, it is finished. The debt was paid, utterly and completely accomplished. There was no more, no more to be done. Now, in fact, uh, we may have, we, I talk, talked a little bit about this week, uh, this last week, and it was the idea that when Romans conducted a, a crucifixion. Tell me about that. Remember what we talked about last week? What would happen after the body was crucified? What would they do with the body? They would burn it. There was a, a fire pit outside the city walls called Gehenna, and they burned all their trash out there. And usually for Roman crucifixions, they would pull the body off the cross and put it in the fire pit. Okay? That did not happen to Christ. What happened to Christ? He was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a, he was a rich man. Okay, say again. Sanhedrin, a, a ruler, yeah. And so, in other words, think about it this way. Remember, we just described the ascension or the descension of Christ. Down, 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 down. It is finished. Then was he thrown in the fire pit? No. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man beginning or commencing his ascension. Now he's being glorified. His, his, uh, his condescension was over, and now his glorification resumed, okay? Uh, that's why we have to reject the notion that he went to hell after he died. His punishment was complete, and his glorification began. However, there are those that believe that there was something else going on after Christ died. I think it was asked in here last week, so what, what about the three days? What was he doing those three days? Was he doing something? And I said, well, I think, I believe he went to the right hand of the Father. And I believe he resumed and enjoyed his glorious position with the Father for those three days. So there are, but there are those within the Christian faith that believe that Christ died, he completed the payment, and then for the next three days, uh, he was resurrected, he went to hell but not to suffer to do something else. And what was that something else? Okay. There are those that believe that when Christ died, he descended into hell to go preach the gospel in hell. Has, has anyone heard that before? Anything like that? You have. Okay. Yeah. You have too? Okay. There's a few. And Courtney, there's been a couple of you that, that have. And had someone come up to me last week that said, hey, wait a minute. After this class, they came, I, I thought there was something that, that didn't the Lord go to Abraham's bosom, is what it's frequently called, and preach to the Old Testament saints. That's why we talked about that last week and the idea of, you have to remember this, that the people in the Old Testament are saved in the way as the, same, as the people in the New Testament, both grace through faith. 
Both of them grace through faith. One looked forward to the cross, one looked back to the cross. So it's not like the, the Old Testament saints were in a holding pattern, you know, waiting for, waiting for well, God's got to do something, and maybe whenever he finishes, we'll, we'll finally get out of here. No, that, that's, that's, that's uh, categorically false, okay? There's a, a couple of ideas, though, that are surrounding this thought. And first, and probably the most popular of those who believe that Christ went to hell after he died, and, and those that believe that Christ went there to preach to the Old Testament saints, uh, why did he need to do that? Well, again, they didn't, they didn't know about Jesus yet is what they say. But remember, that's why we talked about this. That, again, they didn't know fully who Jesus was. They didn't know his name. They didn't know all the things. But they knew that the Lord would provide a sacrifice. That much they knew. That much they understood that the Lord would provide a sacrifice. Finally, in the New Testament, it was revealed Jesus is his name, okay? So, then the, uh, the, these people that, that believe this, this line of thought say, okay, Jesus went down there, introduced himself, and, and freed those who are, I know it sounds kind of funny, oh, hello, I'm Jesus, how are you? Now, it seems a bit problematic to me, again, uh, for all the reasons that we've, we've talked about, looking outside of ourselves, you know, through faith in Jesus, that's how you're saved, all right? So, this idea of Christ preaching to people in hell, what is that based upon? This passage in 1 Peter. Let me read it really quickly. This is 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, let me tell you something. This is, this is a difficult passage. It's tough because, again, there's themes in it. There's pulling from the Old Testament, and, and Peter is making a uh, uh, sort of a comparison. All right? Um, and I'll comment on this by way of an example. Okay, if I were to say, this is the first principle I want you to understand about this passage. If I were to say a few years ago, uh, several of us got together, uh, there's maybe a dozen of us from, from this class, and uh, we watched a, uh, a football game at someone's house. I think it was the, the national championship, last time uh, Georgia won. And uh, he had this game on a, uh, a jumbo projection screen, this fantastic setup, maybe a a hundred inch screen or so. It was wonderful. We had a great time. And again, we didn't just watch the game. We enjoyed one another's company. We had something to eat, got to know each other a little bit better, had some laughs and all around it was a, it was a great time. It was life-giving to be able to enjoy time with each other after a long day at, at the office. You know, sounds good, doesn't it? Okay, having said all that, and having experienced all that, I think it probably means all of us ought to own 100-inch diagonal screen TVs. I think that's what that means, right? Is that, is that the takeaway maybe from that evening I think you think we should have, right? I think that'd be a bad conclusion. It's a detail in the story, yes. That's, that's something I mentioned in the story, but is that, is, that, is that the point of the story? Is that the thing I would want you to know from our get-together? No, it's not. Now, this is something you have to ask yourself when reading the Bible, what's the message that's being communicated? 
you know, what is the author trying to say? What, what, is, what, what am I reading and how does it fit within the chapter I'm reading? And how does the chapter that I'm reading fit within the, the rest of the book that I'm reading? And how does the book that I'm reading fit within the rest of the Bible? You know, this is what you have to, have to ask yourself anytime you read the Bible. Anytime. Every time. So here we, we have this really sort of, you know, some might consider it an obscure verse in the Bible. And it makes mention of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. Is Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison the point of this passage? If you were to read 1 Peter 3, is the point of the passage to, to bring about a doctrine of hell, Jesus preaching to the, the prisons in, 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 uh, in, uh, in captivity in hell? Is that the point? Is that, what, is that why 1 Peter was written? Is that what's being explained in 1 Peter chapter 3? A doctrine on hell. Okay, so first we have to ask ourselves, so what is 1 Peter about? Peter is preaching a message to believers, and he's preparing them for suffering. He's preparing them for suffering like you can't even imagine. Because again, the early church, the suffering that that early church faced in light of, of, of Rome that persecuted them. What Peter is saying is, okay, buckle up. And this is, what's fascinating too is that when you, you think about the sermon series that we're in right now with Jesus in the upper room talking to his disciples, much of what he's talking about, yes, we, we tend to read that and think, okay, he's talking to all believers, but in a sense, he's also talking to the, the 12 he's got in the room. And when he's telling them, be ready and remember these things and the helper's going to come and, he, and, he's, and he's really trying to, 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 to sort of impart to them this idea that you don't have any idea what you're about to face, you 12? And, and what, what was the fate of the 12? What happened to the 12? And it, it didn't go so good. Well, there was Judas, of course, but then the, all the other 11, uh, everyone but John died. Everyone but John died a martyr's death. He was telling, you, you're about to suffer. And so Peter's message is, is very consistent with that to, to first century Christians uh, that are they're spread even broader than, than, uh, than the, uh, the disciples themselves. They're about to face the kind of suffering. And, uh, and his point to them is that su suffering isn't a bad thing. Not, not in the way that we look at it. Suffering is a vehicle for the Christian, is what Peter's trying to tell him here. Suffering produces something in the Christian. Suffering has a purpose for the Christian. This is his thesis statement in this book, if you will. Now, if that's, a, if, that's, if that's the overall objective of what, what Peter is trying to say in his, uh, in, his, in his letter here, how much sense does it make for Peter to suddenly introduce a new doctrine about Jesus preaching to the Old Testament saints in, in hell? Well, okay, from a context standpoint, it, it's left field. It would be left field. Is the point of the passage that, that, uh, to, to point or to teach us something about the three days in between Jesus' death and resurrection? If you're saying that that's what this verse is saying, this one verse, man, that's problematic in the context of the rest of, of what Peter is saying, okay? What Peter's doing here is he's making a correlation between what happened in, in Noah's time and the suffering that they will face, the, the suffering they're about to face. And it was through the waters, it was through the waters, the vehicle of ju God's judgment in Noah's time that Noah and his family were spared. All right, are you seeing the correlation there? Water was the vehicle of judgment in Noah's day, but it was the vehicle by which Noah's family would be spared. Okay, so suffering, the vehicle of judgment, right, would be the very vehicle 
that would spare, that would, that would uh, um, preserve the Christian, that would edify the Christian. Because again, suffering for the Christian is not just a, a, a bad outcome of the fall. It produces something in the Christian. It brings about sanctification. It brings about holiness. That's what happened with Christ, right? Christ suffered on the cross to bring about a victory. And we are being made to be like Christ, okay? That's the point of the, pas- that's the, point of the passage. Here, this passage makes no mention of Old Testament saints. It only says that God waited patiently and proclaimed his message through Noah to people who are now in prison. Think about all those people that mocked Noah, people that uh, uh, um, called him foolish. Uh, those people were judged. They are now in prison, okay? His, his message was preached to those people at that time who did not obey. And I believe that's what the text is saying, that those spirits, those people are in prison and judgment is on them. Now that was a lot, okay? And that's tough. Uh, Anyone have any thoughts, comments, or questions, or, or need any further clarification on that? Because again, it's, it's a difficult passage. I'll acknowledge that. But again, you have to consider the context and what's being said, said uh, everywhere else. Yeah, Will. Um, I was just thinking, uh, if you, I was wondering if you could um, explain the parallel in a little more detail of um, water being the vessel by which the earth was judged, and then suffering being the uh, vessel by which we're judged today and how um, it's also, the water was also the vessel that, w- that saved Noah and his family and suffering being the vessel that yeah. saved us. It's a, it's a tough concept. I, I, I acknowledge that. But you have, to, you have to bring it back to the Word of God, okay? Because the Word of God, uh, this is the best way I can categorize it. The Word of God is life-giving for you and me, for the Christian. The Word of God is the vehicle of salvation for you and I. The Word of God for the non-Christian is what? Say again? And it's the vehicle of judgment. It is judgment, the Word of God. So you see, it has a dual nature to it. That the Word of God is life-giving to you and me, yet it is the vehicle of judgment for, it's the very thing that condemns them. Okay, so think of, think, of the, think of the ark that way. The, Noah's ark was uh, a, a vehicle of deliverance for Noah uh, as it floated in the waters, and, and they were rescued by the waters. They were carried away by the waters, yet it was the very waters that washed away those that, that judgment was upon them. And again, that, and Peter is likening suffering, because what was happening to those, those, uh, those people in, in Noah's time? There was suffering. Noah, Noah faced suffering. Noah faced, Noah faced uh, uh, being ostracized. Noah faced those things, yet the very waters that, that washed him away were the waters that, that carried him to, to safety and carried he and his family to safety. Uh, and again, it's, it's, I know it's, it's not a, a clean line because when you and I think about suffering, we, we seldom think about it as any kind of vehicle of salvation, Right? We think about it as, well, this is just a bad circumstance. No, suffering builds the character of Christ into you and me. Uh, and so it's, like, it's, the, it's the vehicle of deliverance for us. Suffering is what delivered us, yet suffering is also what, what condemns the, the non-believer. Uh, a little better, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because um, 
it seemed to me that the ark was the, the vessel that, that delivered them from, from the suffering, not the water itself, right. whereas the suffering is, is the water that, you know, is, that floods us, but in a way that that's kind of delivering us yes. itself. Yeah. So I was wondering kind of what the ark, where the ark would fit into that analogy. Yeah. Yeah. The, think of the ark as the temple. The, the, believe it or not, the, when you think about the construction of the, uh, of the ark, and if you read through the description, this will blow your mind. If you read through the description of the ark and how it was uh, constructed, all the detail that was put into it, three sections were in that ark. Three sections in the tabernacle. Three sections in the temple. It, it was a giant floating temple. And remember, the temple itself was not a means of deliverance. It pointed to, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. Means of, of deliverance. And there's all kinds of parallels in there. But again, so, so, so think of, think of, of the ark as, as Christ you know, Christ, who would deliver Noah and his family, deliver his church, but also he would judge those who were outside of him, outside of the ark. And again, all kinds of parallels like this, that if you just tie these dots together, it'll blow your mind. Uh, and again, I, I have to be marvel, I marvel at it, because again, it's, it's, it's not something that any of us could have put together with our own intellect, uh, only a God of the universe could, could tie these threads together. Did you have a question, MG? I, uh, I think right there, just I keep, you keep going back to it. You're not saying it, but it's like right there in verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Yeah. And just like underline, underline, like I know we don't like to think that <laughs> that's why we go through bad times, but ultimately that's what's trying to happen. That, that's what sanctification is, right? Suffering, Christ, because Christ suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You know, that's it. That's the point of suffering. That's, that's, the, that's the whole narrative that's happening here in, uh, in 1 Peter 3, and the rest of 1 Peter, for that matter. So, so think of it in those terms, yeah. But I was also noticing, too, like it starts off saying that putting the flesh to death, but made alive the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison— you're in spiritual bondage. So it's not that he physically went to prisons or to those in hell, but to those that needed the salvation and the right. deliverance from sin. And that's why I say this is, it's a stretch to try and draw out a, a doctrine of hell here. That, uh, and and this, is, this is the primary verse that people will point to to say, well, if that, that's what happened. I'm like, okay, uh, maybe, but it's a real stretch. Real stretch. I just have a question. Or, and if you're getting there in a minute, we'll wait. I've always been interested to have a perspective of what was going on on earth between the death and the resurrection. And I believe scripture does speak to some events over those three days. Is that correct? The bodies that were walking around. Okay, that, that was at the, uh, uh, at the crucifixion. And again, the... Uh, and even, even when it says that, uh, so we should pull up that passage. Um, think of it this way. The, the resurrection and, and what, what, it, what was, it was being anticipated there was almost like an aftershock. Okay, that, uh, that immediately when his glorification began. Again, this is only adding further evidence 
to, uh, to this idea that his, his suffering was over, that immediately when his glorification began, it created an aftershock. And suddenly, yeah, there were spirits, there were people that were resurrected, that were walking around. They were walking around because uh, it points to the fact that uh, the resurrection of Christ, the glorification of Christ, has a spillover effect that will ultimately, what that's pointing to, affect you and me one day. It will have a spillover effect and resurrect you and me as well. That, and and that's, that's, that, that was a passage I always found fascinating because I was like, what's, what's happening there? And until, and until it was explained to me in terms of aftershock and glory, the glory of Christ had such a spillover effect that it had that, that impact on bodies that were previously dead in the ground. And for the saints of the Lord, this is what we anticipate. This is the hope that we have, is that one day, because of Christ, because of his righteousness proclaimed and put over on us, it's going to have that effect, that reversing effect that undoes the, the effects of death and sin. That's, a, that's amazing to me. That's a, uh, that's a showstopper right there. Uh, okay, let me, let me keep going here. Um, uh, beyond this, there are others that, uh, which might use this verse to suggest that, again, Jesus went to hell to preach either to the saints or lost souls in hell after he died. But again, you, you just have to ask yourself about the context. Is that what, what Peter or, or Paul in other verses are trying to make a statement about Christ between his birth and resurrection? And really, the reality is uh, you, you just can't make a case for it. It's really tough to do that. Uh, and, I, and I'll just add two more things really quickly, and then uh, we'll go on to the next section. The, the Bible is pretty clear, too, that in terms of, of, uh, of after, after you die, Okay, there are no, uh, if I could say it, put it this way, second chances. There are no second chances, which again is a, is a critical uh, theological difference that we would have with the Roman Catholics who, who believe in the concept of purgatory and, and uh, that, that you could pray people uh, out, of, out of hell. Um, and that's just not the case. Okay, if you read the, the parable of, uh, we brought this up briefly last week, we're going to talk a little bit about more here, the parable of, the, of rich man and, and, uh, and Lazarus. This is in Luke 16. Jesus himself paints for us a picture of what hell will look like. And in verse 26, he says, I think I have this up here. Yeah, Luke 16, 26. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Okay, and there's other passages like Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. So for Jesus to, to then go to hell and preach a, a sort of a second chance message or, or to taunt people in hell with, with good news, it just doesn't make sense, nor is there scripture to back that up. Every scripture that's used to, point, uh, to, uh, that's used to support the claim of Jesus going to hell to preach anything is, is based on verses where that isn't the main point of the verse, okay? And second, I also want to bring this up again, too. Uh, again, I can't remember what we mentioned last week and what we didn't, but the idea of the thief on the cross, which, again, I think is an indicator. That is an indicator of what transpired with Jesus upon his death and also an indicator for, for what will be our fate when our time on earth is finished. And what did he say to the thief on the cross? This day, today. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. I think there's an immediate sense to Jesus' statement. This day, not after a while, not after three days. 
But again, a sense of immediacy. Your glorification begins the moment you leave, you leave earth. And again, it's why so I believe so many, uh, um, also why I believe Jesus proclaimed on the cross to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Okay? Because as he breathed his laugh, last, his fate was the same as, as ours will be too. Okay? Our spirit will go as his went, and, and that was to be at the Father's side the moment we breathe our last. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me get to the microphone real quick. Uh, I've heard before that, that that word that he uses, say you will be with me in paradise, can actually be translated more to Abraham's bosom. Is that true? Uh, the word for paradise? Uh, I don't know, you stumped the teacher. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, let me see if I can look it up real quick. How about that? And if not, if I, if I can't find it quickly, uh, let's see. I w- I'll, I'm going to have an answer for you next week, I promise. Because I can't remember off the top of my head what, the, what that, uh, in, in that passage. What's the, does anyone have that in the, what the reference to that really quick? You don't have, this day you'll be with me in paradise, thief on the cross. Someone look that up before, before we dismiss, and then we'll, uh, I'll, I'll look it up real quick, and I'll read it in the original. Yeah, yeah, Millie, Millie's question is, uh, so when we immediately die, our spirit goes to, to be with the Lord, yes. But our, but our bodies remain. Until they're brought up imperishable at the last trumpet. Yes, yeah, at the second coming of Christ, that's when, that's when that, you know. Physical bodies. Physical bodies. Mm-hmm. We're resurrected. But we're already spirits. Yeah, your spirit, so the moment you die... Yeah, that's why I say this day, you know, your spirit goes to be with the Lord. And then when he brings about the new heavens and the new earth, and along with that, new bodies, we are, we are resurrected. And that, that's uh, the idea of that, uh, that resurrection is from uh, 1 Thessalonians. Is we, we often associate that with Revelation, but it's from th- the, the, trumpet call, the trumpet call is when the bodies in, of Christ shall rise. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about that because there's, there's one more verse that I want to talk about that's sort of where people get this idea, but it has the idea of a of a uh, sort of a rapture idea. Did uh, anyone find that by any chance? Luke 23, 46. Luke 23, 46. Luke 43. Luke, how many times is it in the Bible? No, I'm kidding. Luke 23. Luke 43? 23, 43. Luke 23, 43. Luke 23, 43, paradise. Uh, Pardesios is the original Greek. A, uh, that word, okay, is a, here's, here's the technical definition I have for the word uh, paradesios. Uh, same word as a park or a forest where wild beasts were kept for hunting. A pleasure park. A garden of trees of various kinds used in the, uh, the Septuagint, that's the, uh, the, the Old Testament translated into Greek, for the Garden of Eden, the celestial paradise. So no, no specific mention of Abraham's bosom, but, but what I will do is I'll, I'll, I'll find a little bit more on that term, Abraham's bosom, and where, where it came, uh, came out. Great question, though. Thank you for, for asking that. Um, let, me, yeah, let, me, let me keep going here, uh, and we'll, we'll try and finish up with this. Um, one more verse here. This is uh, from Ephesians. 
And usually people will use this to, to, again, to cite that case. Well, he went to hell uh, after he died. Uh, this is Ephesians 4, 8 to 9, and it says this. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. Okay? Take the, let's take this apart phrase by phrase. What we often hear in reference to the creed is that Christ descended to hell to set the captives free. In other words, Christ died, descended to hell, preached to the captives, then he pulled them out of hell after preaching to them. And again, is that what this verse is saying? Okay, look again, starting in verse 8. First of all, let's point out it says he ascended. That means that he went up, okay? He went up and he led a host of captives. Not that he descended and led a host of captives, but that on his way up, he led a host of captives. So that's the first thing you have to take note of. It's saying that he went up. He led a, a host of captives. So, so who are these captives? If you'll notice in this verse, Paul is quoting something by saying, therefore it says, right? Therefore it says, then quotes. What says? Where, where is it saying this? He's quoting from Psalm 68. Paul is borrowing from the Psalm where David is describing victory over his foe. So when a victorious king, and again, this is imagery that, that's tied into the rapture, this idea when Christ comes back, when a victorious king led his army back from war, what would happen? The conquering king would essentially lead a procession back into the city, and the townspeople would come from all over and, and meet them outside the gates, and they would all enter the city together, like a parade, okay? Along with them, they'd bring the spoils of war, which could be precious metals, uh, anything valuable, and yes captives. The captives would be part of the procession too. They'd be shackled up and they, they, would, they would be led along the parade route. All right? That's what would happen. This is the imagery Paul is drawing upon. It's the same imagery he uses in, in, in 1 Thessalonians to describe the rapture. Very same analogy. The captives being led are not allies who are once imprisoned. They're prisoners. They're the enemies. They're part of the spoils of war. These are those who the king has triumphed over. So what Paul is referring to here is, is who are Christ's captives? Could they be the, the demons or demonic forces that he mentions earlier in, uh, from Ephesians, also, also in Ephesians? Maybe another foe of some kind. Either way, either way, it's tough to make the case that, that this verse is referring to something other than an adversary. Do you see that? Okay, draw the parallels and connect them to the rest of Scripture. And again, the other reason this verse, verse is mentioned in conjunction with the creed and Christ descending to hell after his death is because it says he descended to the lower regions, comma, the earth. People will often assume that lower regions means hell. You know, is that what he's talking about here? Is that what it is? I really don't think it works with context. In this context, Paul's focus is not, again, an exposition on an exposition of the doctrine of hell. Paul is comparing this to a victorious king returning from war and sharing the spoils with his subject. That's what he's talking about here. And what are the spoils that he's going to share? Well, it looks like this, revealed in verse 11. What's he going to give out? What are the spoils? And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. That's the context here. It'd be very out of context for Paul to interject a commentary on Christ preaching to captives in hell. It just doesn't work, okay? 
Again, you may arrive at a different conclusion than, than I do when you read these passages, but it's so, whatever conclusion you arrive at, you have to consider the context. You must, must, must consider the context. And it's really hard to reach this doctrine of hell, Jesus descending and preaching to whomever, uh, using context. It's really hard. Um, and there was a sense that I, I really wanted to be able to, to say that because it just, it's just so easy to say, yeah, that's what it was. Uh, because that's, that's what we've, we've learned and that's what we've heard in the past. But again, you have to, whenever you're reading the scriptures, you just have to do that. You have to consider what are the verses immediately around it saying? What is it saying within the chapter, the chapter within the book, the book within the rest of the Bible? So important. And with that, let me see if any, any questions that you might have that takes us to three minutes to 1130. Anyone else? Thoughts, comments, questions? I know that's tough. Tough passage. Yeah, Sam, let me get you the mic. Thank you. This is very fascinating to me, and I think about hell and us thinking about more of it being a what than a where. Do you think you could talk more on how Christ experienced hell while he was still alive? Because when I think about hell, sorry, excuse me, heaven or hell, I think about it um, in the context of after death. His, uh, I, uh, my argument would be that his, he started to experience hell uh, with the events of the cross, with his suffering. Uh, because if you think about it, what was happening the night before his crucifixion? He was praying in the garden. He was making one last plea, as it were, to the Father, my God, my God, let this cup, this cup of wrath pass from me. In other words, he, he, he still wasn't uh, uh, sort of paying that price from a, 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 a remission of sin standpoint until the suffering began, uh, my guess is around the time of the arrest. Uh, because again, that's perhaps when the goodness of the father, you know, when he, when he turned his face in that regard, uh, and that thus began his, his, his suffering. Even though, even though, his descending began prior to that, but the suffering, I would say, began around the time of the arrest. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I think it, it, it would look like in that point. So, because again, to that point, right up to, the, to, to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, did I call it Golgotha earlier? The Garden of Golgotha? Did I? No, okay. Golgotha's different. That's the hill of the skull. But in Gethsemane, he was saying, my God, my God, let this be yet not as I will, but yours be done. And that's when he yielded himself over to the will of the Father. Uh, and again, uh, it, it, that just shows, if anything, the humanity of Jesus saying, is there any, any way that I can not face the cup that I'm about to take? And that cup was hell. That's what it was. Someone else? Yeah, Scott, let me get you the mic. If your answer is, go watch last week because I wasn't here, then you can say that. Um, why does this happen in the Apostles' Creed after it says he was crucified, died, and was buried, and then it says he was sending them to hell? Why does it sort of fall after that, at least in the... And that's one of the points of contention within the creed, you know, is that uh, there's a lot of us, we don't agree exactly maybe on the placement. I did say, I briefly mentioned last week that what makes this, this, uh, that line in the creed problematic is not even... Yes, that it's mentioned, but even the placement of where it's mentioned, because it does seem to indicate that that is some, sort of an after effect that after he died. So 
All the other reasons that we explained about what hell is is why the rest of us uh, confessing Christians will say, okay, we're okay to leave that line in. Uh, but why so many would want to leave it out because number one, it's a little ambiguous. And number two, the placement is, is, uh, is questionable because again, what most of us would contend is that when he proclaimed it as finished, that's when his suffering was ended. That's when his descending was complete. So good question. Yes. Uh, let me go to Greg and then we'll, we'll come back to uh, Will. So I'm in Luke 23. Uh, the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle. Saying this, he breathed his last. So to me, that curtain down the middle is symbolic of we have all been restored to God at that instant, right? It, it coincides with the it is finished. At that point, then the question I ask, at that point, why would he need to even need to go to hell? And also in Luke, then it says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, which to me says he went to be with the Father immediately until he then arose on the third day. Really quickly about the curtain, you know, the, the fascinating thing about that is that, yes, what, what was the symbolic nature of what was happening when the, when the curtain was torn in two? It says, whoosh, you now have access. You have access, okay? And the, the thing about that is that to have access to God the Father, you, you can't just be sinless. You have to be sinless and righteous. And so that, in and of itself, tells me, Christ's work is, is done because what Christ afforded us was not just sinless, it's not just a, a, a remission of sins, but his righteousness that was offered to us so that we can approach God. And I always, whenever we talk about this, I, I reference Micah 6, 8 because that's explicit about, uh, you know, uh, what, God, what the Lord requires of you. You know, he has shown you, oh man, uh, what, the Lord, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, but to love mercy and to walk humbly with your Lord. None of those things mentioned there, these are requirements to be with the Lord. None of those requirements are don't murder, you know, don't lie, don't, these are proactive things. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your Lord. These are acts of righteousness. To be righteous, to be with the Father, to have access to the Father is to have all those things. And the only way that we can have those things is if Christ's work is completed and given to us. It's fascinating. Yeah, Will. Uh, yeah. Mine was, mine was kind of quick. I was just wondering, to go off the, uh, the question before, um, under this interpretation that hell, the, the word hell in the creed is really the, 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 bottom, uh, like the bottom of Christ's experience, um, experiencing death, and that's kind of the form of hell that he, that he faced, and, and the Father turns his face away, and he only has the wrath. Um, with the the problem of the word hell being placed like after the burial um, and and some of and some of this the people in, under this interpretation would maybe um, re, like say that oh maybe the location of the word hell is misplaced under this interpretation would would you would you find it appropriate to revise the the creed to say something more along the lines of and he was died and thereby experienced hell and was buried? There are some that have, you know, you can find some versions of the creed out there that has sort of reworded a little bit or, like I said, just left it out in, 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 uh, in totality. Uh, but at that point, you know, it, it, you're, it's, pretty, it's a pretty lofty task or a pretty 
you know, to say, hey, let's change the creed. Uh, after it's been in probably its current format since like, what, six or 700? Uh, and so again, that's why a lot of us said, well, is this still something we can confess? Yeah, we can because of these reasons. And then we can have discussions just like this one and, uh, and work through it and, and cause us to go back to our scriptures and say, what is this, what is this saying? And so in other words, it's, it's so, uh, it is a little nebulous, again, which is why we say this is not the scriptures, but it's not so egregious that we say, well, we have to leave it off, even though some have. Uh, so it would be a huge undertaking to say, let's, let's, uh, let's change the creed, which is, again, again, some people have said that and some people just don't say the creed because of uh, that line in general. Yeah, I think so. It would have been probably more accepted. And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of times, I remember we've had the creed up here. Uh, well, we'll put an asterisk by hell and then try a brief explanation. You know, like even that's, we've been talking about this for two weeks now. It's hard to put an asterisk and say, eh, well, you know, you know. So, but uh, either way. Yeah, one more. I was just going to add, we talked about um, Abraham's bosom. That is in the story of the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, obviously, obviously, yeah. 1622. Yeah, okay, obviously. Yeah, we just read that about the rich man and Lazarus because he's explicitly mentioned, uh, Abraham is mentioned, you know, to be at the side of Abraham. And so I think that's, that's uh, I guess I didn't realize that maybe that was where the, uh, the foundation of, of the term Abraham's bosom was, but it makes sense, it makes total sense. Yeah, thank you, Marla. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the ability to have these uh, discussions and, uh, and, and dig in your word. Father, help, help us not just to make this a, uh, a task of, of uh, just for the fun of it or just because we can do it, but allow this to make a difference in us so that we uh, go forth proclaiming your word to those that need to hear it, to those we wish to have hell spared from them because they have the gospel. Uh, Father, make it so, and let us be your your instruments in in bringing about your peace. Thank you again. Uh, Be with us now as we go our different uh, different directions. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.